0: Well, I'm going to put this here, but I'm not going to stand behind it this morning. I want to introduce to you our guest speaker this morning uh, in a moment who will be coming up here, and that is Joe Lab. Um, Joe has been a friend of mine for a while, and our friendship has grown in intentionality over the last year, year and a half or so, and in that time, I've really come to appreciate his heart uh, both for the Lord and for his wife, Kate. Uh, He's married to Kate, been married for... How many years, Joe?
1: Almost four years,
0: yeah. Almost 40 years now. <laughs> Sorry, what was that? Four. Four. Four years. All right. So there's going to be a zero on the end of that someday because <laughs> Kate and Joe are, are great and their heart for God is clear and their love for each other is strong. And Joe is a student at Westminster Seminary now. has a couple more years till he's done there. Um, and he also has been speaking at Hershey Mennonite for uh, a while and filling in in their pulpit there on a regular basis, which is interesting. So for those who know history at Grace Point Church, when we used to be Paradise Mennonite Church, we were in the same district with Hershey Mennonite Church, if I'm getting my history right. And so in a way, there's a little bit of a full circle here with a relationship again with Hershey Mennonite, coming right back here to this space here to address us this morning. So um, Joe is also connected with the factory ministry, he has been involved there for years um, and mentors some students in our community. So, Joe, we're really glad to have you here. I'm glad to have you here, and we're looking forward to having you come share your heart with us this morning. So, you know what? Applauzo for Joe. Joe, come on up, man. We're glad to have you. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, man. Appreciate
1: you. All right. Well, good morning. Uh, It's good to be here with you this morning. Um, The other point of credential that Tim Tim didn't mention um, that Randy pointed out before the service was that Tim and I go to the same barber. So it works, that works out well for us. Um, but no, thanks for having me, Tim, and thanks to all of you um, for being here as well. Um, I consider myself a, a practical person. Um, and so in college, when Kate and I were dating my wo- who is now my wife, um, she, always, she asked me this question, and, and to this day even, like, what do you want for your birthday? Or what do you want for Christmas? And me, I never know how to answer that question. And so usually the thing I want is well beyond the budget of a college student or even my budget now. And so, again, I consider myself practical. Well, okay, Kate, you asked me what I want, so I'll take, well, I mean, we're in college, so double-ply toilet paper would be nice, um, some toothpaste, uh, and, and maybe some deodorant. And some, some practical things. And to, me, and to me, that's just the way that I am. I could, Like I said, I consider myself practical. I want things around me in my life to serve a function, to, to act purposefully for me. The way I'll use them. But then when I think when we cross the line from the material world to the immaterial world, I think about you know, my relationship with God. I think about my faith. Does that have a function? Is it practical? Does it serve a purpose? And so I fear sometimes we as Christians, we don't view our relationship with God that way. We don't view our faith as practical, as fulfilling a purpose, as one that functions. I think we know that it's important I think we know Ephesians 2, right? Where, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So we understand its importance, but is it functioning? Is it moving beyond a heart and mind level, a heart and head level, and moving to our hands and to our feet? Is it practical? Does it serve an everyday purpose? Is it working? And so my question for us is, if faith is to be practical and move beyond our head and our heart, what does it look like? How does it act? How does it function? Is it working? And so to illustrate this example, uh, would you turn with me to Genesis 22? Whether you have your Bibles or on your phone, either is fine. Um, And as you turn there, I want to give us a bit of context in Genesis 22. See, in Old Testament times, a person's livelihood was built around their family. And if you wanted a family that was going to sustain you, you needed to have children. Because ultimately, they were the ones that were going to take care of you. They were the ones that were going to support you when you got old. And most importantly for, for these times, it was, it was really important to have a boy. Because the boy was the one that was to stay in the homestead, in the house, and see your and take care of you to the very end. And it was the inheritance that was being offered to the sons. While the, the women would go away and off in different homes and get married. It was the boys who stayed. So if they were having kids, it was important for them to have a boy that could stay and take care of them. That can inherit their inheritance. And we get to Abraham in the story today is one of our main characters. And his wife Sarah Years and years, they were trying to have a family. Years and years, they were trying to have children, but they couldn't. And Abraham longed for a son. Longed to love a son. But again, year after year, none came. And then one day, at the age of 75... God came to Abraham and called Abraham and said, Abraham, go from this place into the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And so Abraham, hearing the promise of God, takes up everything, him, his wife and his nephew Lot, and he, they go. Hearing the promises of God, hearing that God would give him a nation, God would give him a son, and they left. Hoping in the promises of God. And so they were in the wilderness, they were in the land, and it was miserable. Much like how many stories go in the Old Testament. It was miserable. Year after year went by, and still no offspring. No son, no daughter. And instead of a land of plenty, they got a land of famine, And drought. And it was so bad that they actually had to leave for a period of time to seek refuge. And year after year went by until ten years later and still no son. Though Abraham longed for one. He desired one. He desired somebody, an offspring, to call his own. And so ten years passed and God again comes to Abraham. And says, Abraham... I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. As numerous as the dust on the earth. And If you've ever been to Grandma's Attic, you know the dust is plenty. But I'm going to make you a great nation. And once again, Abraham believes in the promises of God. And he's willing to abandon everything he knows in obedience And at this point, if you're Abraham, you might be a little upset. Year after year, you're waiting. Year after year, you're only getting older. And Abraham's approaching 100 years old. Sarah approaching 90 years old. Biologically, things don't happen right anymore. The Bible describes them as not me. The Bible describes it twice as they're as good as dead. That's not my qualitative statement. But they're advanced in years, as the Bible says. The clock is ticking. And still no son. But amazingly, Abraham continues to have faith in this promise. And he continues to wait, he and Sarah both, for a son. Are there hiccups? Yep. Abraham's not perfect. But overall, he remains steadfast in his faith, believing in the promises of God. And so then we get to Genesis 21, right before where we're at today. And finally, 25 years of waiting, 25 years plus some of longing for a child, longing for a son, and finally, we have the birth of Isaac. The first physical manifestation of the promises of God coming true. Finally, a descendant. And then we get to our text today and find one of the most difficult testings of faith. It's in the testing of Abraham's faith that we see faith working practically. We see its function, we see it working. We see faith that goes beyond the head and the heart and move to the hands and to the feet. So Genesis 22, and we're going to walk through this slowly together. And at the top I want to I want to say it's going to be uncomfortable. I want it to be uncomfortable, and you'll see why at the end. Genesis 22. Some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, who you waited 25 plus years for. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Gut-wrenching, right? Take your son, your only son, whom you love, the one that you've waited year after year for, the one you've been expecting for a long time, and take him and go to the mountain to which I would show you and sacrifice him. Are you tracking with me in this story? Do you hear the testing of Abraham's faith here. My my reaction, haven't I sacrificed enough? I've left everything. I left things that I was comfortable in. I left my old life behind to go into this wilderness in obedience to you. Haven't I sacrificed enough? I don't want to imagine this. 25 years plus then we get to verse 3 Abraham's reaction early in the next morning Abraham got up saddled his donkey he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering he set out for the place God had told him about In an amazing measure of faith. Abraham doesn't tarry, he doesn't wait. Instead, he gets up early in the morning, he prepares the things for the journey. He wakes his two servants up. He wakes his son Isaac up, and they help prepare for the journey as well. They take the wood, they chop the wood together that was to be used as the burnt offering underneath the sacrifice. And they set out together. You see, to Abraham, this was really going to happen. This was a reality. He was following and being obedient to God. And upon hearing the command from the Lord, he immediately moves to obey early the next morning. He has a faith that works and acts because he trusts in the promises of God. He trusts in the reality that God is for him, right? We sung about that this morning, that God is for us. And he trusts that that's true about his God. And so his faith works and moves obey. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham looked and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will what? Worship. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Now I love this. Again, what are they going to do? You can have some interaction here. They're going away to worship. Going away to worship. Inherently, in worship, the worshiping party recognizes their inferiority and recognizing then the other's superiority, right? That God is ultimately way above them. That God is the creator and then they are the creation. So worshiping God as supreme. They're going away to worship. And again, this sits awkwardly, right? In comparison to what is taking place. They're going away to worship while God said, go and sacrifice your one and only son whom you love. But notice the end of verse 5. We will worship and then we will come back to you. We will worship and we will come back to you. Amazingly. Abraham had no concept for resurrection. This is Genesis 22. This is early on in redemptive history, right? No concept for resurrection. But he had faith in a God that was far above anything he could imagine, far above any expectation that he could ever have, trusting in the promises that God made to him beforehand, trusting that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars, as numerous as the sand, as numerous as the dust. And so God, or Abraham, because of his assurance in these promises, acts in faith and is able to say, we will return to you. We will return to you. And so verse 6, right before they're heading up the mountain, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Father placing the wood on the back of his son to carry up the mountain. And Abraham himself, the father, carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, verse 7, Isaac spoke up and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb? For the burnt offering. Abraham answered. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. My son. And the two of them went on. Together. Naturally. Isaac asks. Dad. You know we're, we're preparing all these things for a sacrifice. But where is the lamb? Where is the animal that's going to be sacrificed? Where is it? A natural Reaction from Isaac. What are we doing this for? Where's the lamb? And Abraham's response, again, is one that reflects his faith. Faith in a lamb that God would truly provide. His faith in God's provision of a lamb, which allows him then to work, to act, to function, to have his faith work practically in obedience to God, trusting in his promises, knowing that God is truly for him. And so this same faith is the one that allows him to rise early, allows him to saddle the donkey, allows him to cut the wood, allows him to prepare the sacrifice. His faith works. And it goes on, verse 9. When they reached the place God told him about, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Abraham continues in his preparation continues to prepare the sacrifice meticulously building arranging the altar underneath where the sacrifice would sit so it would burn most efficiently arranging the wood horrifyingly then he binds his own beloved son the only son the child of promise the heir of his inheritance. He and Sarah's only offspring. And he lays him on the altar in obedience. And in continued faith, he stretches out his hand, holding the knife, preparing to, as the verb says, slay his son. Obedient to God's command, his faith working in his actions to follow the Lord. But that's not the end of the story. And we're thankful for it. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And so we as an audience, we as a reader, right, we rejoice in this reality, We rejoice that God, our Father, spared Abraham from sacrificing his one and only son. We rejoice at that. And Abraham and Isaac, both being true worshipers on the Mount that day, returned to the servants. And God did provide. In this case, He provided a ram. For the burnt offering. To sit atop the altar that he meticulously arranged. He did provide. He always provides for his people. It may not be in ways we always like. But he is not a God that breaks his promises. So one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is. Do we have this type of obedient faith? this type of obedient faith that's willing to sacrifice all that we have, our most valuable possession. One that costs us great. Because notice this here. The language in this story is very intentional. And it's corollary to something that would happen in the future. Because God, being our Heavenly Father, did not count it too great a cost to give up His Son. Right? His one and only Son, whom He loves. He spared Abraham, He spared Isaac from going through that, but He loved you and I enough to send His Son, whom He loves. We sung about it this morning, right? The nails in the hands, the spear in the side. The knife went into Jesus. The nails went into the hands. He was not spared from the sacrifice. In Christ's work on earth, the promises coming to reality gives us Faith then. And it's recognizing the reality of who Christ is, who Jesus is in our life, what God the Father has done on behalf of us, that we worship Him in faith. And in all of this sacrifice, in all of who God is, we can't help but worship Him with our hands and with our feet. And so our Father in heaven, in a desire to free us from our bondage of our own sin, desiring to reconcile relationship between us and Him, desiring to reconcile relationship with one another, prepared His Son for sacrifice. He placed the wooden cross on His back. And like Isaac, Jesus carried it up the mountain. And on top of the mountain, like Isaac bound against the wood, Christ was nailed to a cross. A guilt offering for all those that would believe for the only way that we could be put in right relationship with God was by Christ's blood shed on that cross. And like Isaac, Jesus submits to his father, humbly submitting to him in obedience, willingly taking up the wood and placing it on his back, willfully ascending the mountain to bear the burden of sin though he was without it. So praise God that he acts on behalf of creation to send the sacrificial lamb, the lamb promised here in Genesis 22. John the Baptist proclaimed it. Behold, the Son of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world, this is he, our Christ. What I want us to understand This is a game-changing reality. We shouldn't miss this. If you were tracking through the story, we are uncomfortable with this. Costly grace is one where Jesus died for us. We simply receive it as a gift. This is a game-changer. And so our faith in this God, our faith in the promises changes our entire perspective, changes our reality then, because we recognize that grace to him was costly. So our faith doesn't sit on the sidelines, it gets in the game. It acts, it moves, it's practical. Now what I'm not saying is that grace merits us any more grace or any more favor. It is not our works don't save us, but what our works are a result of is our faith recognizing who Jesus is. And having our affections stirred for who Jesus is. Having our affections stirred that God the Father did not count it too great a cost to send His Son for you and for me. This stirs our affections. And we can't help but to get in the game. We act in obedience. We serve Him in obediently. Are you so in awe of God that you cannot help but worship Him both in word and in deed? A working, practical faith recognizes that every possession one has is a gift from God. Now, Tim promised you a wrapper this morning. That's not me. But... One of my favorite rappers, Lecrae, says this. You see, your money, your singleness, marriage, talent, your time, everything you have was loaned to you to show the world that Christ is divine. It's all a gift. That's why it's Christ in my rhymes. That's why it's Christ all the time. See, my whole world is built around him. He's the life in my lines. But it's the humble recognition in that, an obedient faith that says, God, I'm willing to give it all to you. I'm willing to sacrifice my very best, my very most precious of possession for you. My whole world is built around you. A working faith is why we are so willing to give up our time why we volunteer at things like Vacation Bible School this week. Why we are willing to go into the school and serve them in summer school. Why we take trips to the Dominican Dominican Republic and serve him there. It's, It's why we do what we do. It's why we act how we act. It's faith working practically. It's why we give our time. It's why we give our resources. It's why we so fervently pray for those around us. A faith that works is a faith that serves. Serving faith is practical. And our faith works because it recognizes, ultimately, the work of Christ on the cross. And in turn we then offer our bodies, Romans Romans 12, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice in all that we do, in all areas where we serve. Let's pray. God, we thank you for, uh, this morning we thank you that we can be together to worship you. That you have loved us so, and cared for us so, and that you have our backs, that you have our best in mind, that you were willing to send your one and only Son as a sacrifice for us. That you didn't count even the death of your beloved Son as too great a cost so that we might be put in right relationship with you. So God, we thank you for your provision, for your ultimate provision in your Son, and that you have given us your word to study and to look at and to see your redemption played out. And God, I pray that as we recognize your great love for us, that we would humbly submit to you in obedient worship. And so that all that we do would be for your honor, for your glory. However we serve, however we give, whatever it is that we're doing for the sake of your kingdom, again would be all for your honor, for your glory, for your praise. For the only reason we can do such things is through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And it's in his name we pray.